If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bunker Daily, the wind-powered garden shed to Wednesday's fully self-sustainable eco-home. I am Alex Andreu and I'm talking to you from the UK at long last. On the first day I'm allowed to go out, but I'm not out, having completed my two-week quarantine after six months on an island with zero cases. Today's guest is the Professor of Economics, former Green Party MEP, SOB, and current Green Party spokesperson on Brexit and finance, Molly Scott Cater. Molly, welcome. How are you? Oh, thank you, Alex. Well, it's a pleasure to have you back in the country, I must say. I, I'm fine, although yeah, slightly weirded out, but I really enjoyed your tweets and your recipes and your stories about your beautiful mama. Uh, kept us all going, I think, through lockdown. It was lovely. <laughs> As confinement goes, uh, Mykonos is not a bad place to be stuck in. Yeah. I wasn't uh, going to mention I the views, the envy-inducing views, which were also fascinating. <laughs> Are you are you like me at the moment, still pretty much locked down and terrified of stepping out of your Socratic cave? Or are you one of those brave, mad people who go to pubs? No, I'm like you. I'm a raving hypochondriac at the best of times, and I'm also an introvert. So, you know, lockdown hasn't really been much of a problem for me. <laughs> um Right. Let us uh, let us get our teeth into first of all the Russia report. Of course, it was um, juicier than I had expected. I think um, nobody thought it would contain incontrovertible evidence of interference, but I'm not sure anyone foresaw that it would contain no evidence at all. Because, oops, we seem to have neglected to look for any. What What are your thoughts? I thought that was pretty extraordinary, and the number of Tories, including the Prime Minister, Prime Minister's questions today, saying, oh, well, there was no evidence, you know, no evidence of successful interference, um, but failing to mention that that's because they didn't instruct the security services to look for any, and the security services didn't take it upon themselves to look for any interference in our democracy, even, I think, after November 2017, when Theresa May came out and made that speech, I think, at the Banqueting House, you know, very clearly accusing um, Russia of interference in our democracy, but still nobody went to look. So, you are sort of left with the suspicion that they didn't go to look because they, they knew they'd find something and they wanted to be able to say they hadn't found anything, which isn't really very reassuring. Yeah, what, what about, I, I thought one of the most interesting sections of it was this notion that the UK, well, um, I say the UK, London to be more specific, has become so steeped in dirty rubles that an entire industry has sprung up around it from organized crime to lawyers and accountants, so that a whole host of people, from noted peers in the House of Lords to the smallest contractor, are now acting effectively, and these were the words in the report, as de facto Russian agents. 
Yeah, I think this idea of the laundromat is um, very disturbing and it's obviously something I came across when I was an MEP working on various tax committees. And in fact, I went on a fact-finding mission to Riga in Latvia, which is the kind of, I was going to say the underbelly, but that's not quite right. It's the sort of weak link financially on the edge of Europe. And obviously a lot of Latvians speak Russian. And so it's it's the way Russian money is funneled in. But they were very clear that it then went to the city of London and that was where it, it found its home. And yeah, you're right. You know, we have a whole bunch of lawyers and accountants and all sorts of other people effectively ser- servicing uh, Russian oligarchs and helping them launder their ill-gotten gains. And it's it's had a, a really pernicious effect not just on our political system, but but also on the culture surrounding money laundering and tax avoidance. And obviously, that's something that the EU is battling strongly against and something that the bad boys of Brexit are very keen to keep in place. Um, what do you think of the current um, political situation in the UK, you know, the, the current government and, and the way they're running things? <laughs> As an open question, it's quite hard to get through this answer without. It's a pretty words, open. It? <laughs> it's a pretty open question. We, we were chatting. We were chatting about it. We were chatting about it earlier, and I think the word shambles came up, but I didn't want to put words. Sh- shambles. In your mouth. I mean, yeah, I, I'd have a sort of rather rude expletive before shambles. I think if I was, you know, not the polite person I am. I, I mean, on, <laughs> on one level, it's just massive, gross incompetence. Um, on another level, it's you know, it's, it feels very anti-democratic. It feels like we didn't get the government that we deserved or that we needed. And I think it's clear that we've got a, a government where if essentially people have been chosen for their Brexit purity and their loyalty to Boris Johnson, regardless of their level of competence. And I think we saw that with Grayling, you know, nearly becoming the, the chair of the um, Intelligence and Security Committee, failing Grayling, you know, because he was a Brexiteer, because he was going to be loyal to Johnson. I mean, it's just such an appalling way to, to run the mm. country. And yeah, and we essentially vote leave has taken over the country. Um, I'm sure we had chats on here before about the corruption of the vote leave campaign, the cheating, you know, the data theft, and essentially that bunch of people are now running the country. And that's pretty terrifying, quite honestly. Um, what about the response to the coronavirus uh, pandemic? Well, that's um, been just a, that has been a shambles it's been a shambles and there's no question that we've seen tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths because of the total incompetence and i think i mean i heard somebody saying the other day you know it was those first six weeks that decided the level of deaths you would have in your country and during those six weeks boris johnson was effectively sorting out his divorce and kind of squaring off his children with the fact that he was going to have another baby you know so he was there at checkers just not concentrating on this pandemic at all and that, you know, that was the window. There was only that window. And I think we completely depend on our governments to be there when the crisis hits. And he was clearly absent. And so then you had the problem with, you know, this sort of flirting with the idea of herd immunity, um, which the next day after that was mentioned, everybody on Twitter worked out on the back of an envelope that that meant half a million deaths, you know, but it took the government about 10 days to get to that place. And during those 10 days, the virus got out and you know, the, the sort of 30 to 40,000 deaths happened because of that. So, I mean, it's it's just mismanagement on a, on a monstrous scale, quite honestly. And, of course, we need we need an inquiry, but, you know, we really need to, to solve our democratic problems so we don't end up with such an incompetent government and a leader who's basically there for his own interests, ego interests, rather than to serve the country. And that's that's the tragedy we're living in at the moment.
in, in a situation where, as, as, as became evident, um, if the leader becomes incapacitated, there is absolutely no system uh, in place, no formalized process for what happens next, which I think it was another crucial point at the uh, development of the pandemic. And, and I think, again, because people were basically acting like, you know, night watchmen, to use a a cricket analogy um they they sort of wanted to just do enough but not do anything too decisive that would upset boris johnson when he came out of hospital it seemed to me we went into a sort of circling pattern again at, at a very crucial moment for testing and all those things well it was a little bit like that film the death of stalin wasn't it it was you know if, if you think of stalin as being boris johnson and cummings combined they were both ill. They were both out of out of country. You know, who knows where Barnard Castle or wherever. In Cummings' case, St Thomas's Hospital. In Johnson's case, you know, and nobody dared to do anything for fear that they might get sort of annihilated by the Dom um, if they played the wrong card. You know, that's. I mean, that was the situation we were in. The whole point of being a democracy is you don't end up in that kind of situation. And I think what this has revealed is, you know, that the failures of our constitution. And I think going back to Putin, that's what Putin identified very clearly as well. You know, he didn't have to buy off very many people to corrupt our whole democratic system because our institutions are so weak and there is no written constitution. I mean, I'm I'm now in the situation where I can say at a public meeting, what do we want? Written constitution. And everybody erupts into excitement. You know, that's the kind of state we're in now because people realize we just need some <laughs> rules governing our democracy. It's actually very important. And of course, we've always had these smoke-filled rooms and gentlemen's agreements and people, you know, deciding things in their clubs. We're still living in that 18th century world. And I think we're learning very quickly through Brexit and now through COVID that that leaves you incredibly vulnerable. So what, what about the EU's response to the coronavirus pandemic? Where, where do you think they've been, if we're looking at their their health response to the pandemic before we look at the sort of economic and recovery uh, package stuff. What do you think they did well and what do you think they did badly? Well, I think it was very different from country to country, wasn't it? Because Greece, as you pointed out, actually responded extremely well, as did Germany, as did the um, Baltic states and the Central European countries. Um, whereas, you know, the countries that think of themselves as the sort of more successful um, European countries like France, Spain, Italy and the UK actually performed disastrously. So I think it was interesting that there was that much of mm. variability. Countries didn't seem to be able to learn, because I think Italy was partly incompetent, but partly unlucky. But, you know, I was sort of passing the information I was getting from Italy across to people, hoping we could avoid that. But countries didn't seem to be able to learn from each other. And I don't think it was that surprising that people immediately organise this at a national level, because health is a national competence still. You know, it's not something where the EU has any particular power. So there was a lot of breast beating and, you know, gnashing of teeth over that at the EU institutional level. But personally, I, I didn't find that so surprising. There was then some cooperation, but uh, yeah, perhaps there will be better cooperation on health matters in future. I think that that would be a, a positive a positive step forward. Yeah, my, my, I mean, my theory about Greece is that because because they knew how rickety the health system was after 10 years of economic crisis. Um, they knew that, you know, the virus could overwhelm it in a matter of days. Um, and so they were, they were uh, 
quick and you know draconian in terms of their action and the countries with the notable exception of germany um who were more relaxed and thought their health system could quote could cope um sort of paid the price um what about so what about the post covid stuff i mean we've had uh, in the last couple of days uh, it's been the recovery fund has been announced it's been agreed after many days of wrangling um how significant do you think is the fact that it's mutualized first of all i think that is significant but it isn't it still isn't a solution to the main problem of the eurozone which is that some countries can tell other countries how they can spend their money you know it's never quite clear whose money the euro is but we basically know it's the germans money and that means if you're italy or greece you're constantly beholden to germany for conditionality and that i think is always going to feel uncomfortable to a, to mm. a sovereign country um but anyway it, as you say one of the things that the covid crisis has provoked is a step towards that that mutualization and i'm i'm pretty disappointed with mark rutter from the netherlands in particular for sort of just being a bit mealy-mouthed in the middle of this crisis you know and leading the opposition although interestingly of course britain would have led that opposition if we'd still been part of the eu but but anyway i think yeah it is an improvement and and for me the main distinction between what's happening in the eu and what's happening in the uk is that there are climate conditions attached to that public money that's you know that the covid recovery fund will be um you know it will have to be focused on climate in order for for countries to draw it down and 30% of the whole eu budget will be focused on climate obviously greens have worked very hard to get that and it's just kind of tragic to compare in the uk mm. where big loans are going out to to airline companies and uh, to oil companies and so on and you know the whole idea of building back better is actually incredibly popular we're going to have to create jobs to avoid a you know mammoth recession and we should be creating those jobs making sure that the green transition happens as quickly as possible and getting to net zero carbon as quickly as possible but unfortunately again probably going back to party funding reasons the tories are, are doing the opposite thing you know and that's very very disappointing and of course because we're not in the eu now we won't get our share of the green funding that will go through the european budget and so we're completely dependent on the tories to choose how that money's spent i think the eu correct me if i'm wrong but i think it's the 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 only major economic power so far that has actively said you know this reset may provide an opportunity to do things differently and that means linking it to the green deal um uh, you know the us recovery is completely the opposite they're actually penalizing uh, uh, you know green energy companies and and funneling money into um gas and coal and petrol um because they want a quick and dirty recovery um do you think do you think the eu is trying to become a model for other uh, big economic powers in terms of uh, the environment or or is it lip service well i think the eu is definitely positioning itself in that way you know there are three economic blocks the european union china and the us i mean this is this is how it's it's portrayed from the eu level and the eu is the one that's yeah. going to lead on values and on environmental protection and on high standards and so on 
Um, and I mean, the rhetoric is quite powerful and useful there. And obviously, as Greens, we do use that to leverage as much cash in that direction as possible. And there is a climate act coming, which I think will then make it harder to have any backsliding. But of course, the problem that the EU's got is that it's got mm. member states in Eastern, Central Eastern Europe, you know, that are very dependent on fossil fuels still, and particularly Poland. And then Poland always asks for an enormous price in order to just do basically what's the right thing. And, you know, I've had to put up with that myself in negotiations, and I can tell you it's, it's pretty hard to stomach. And, you know, the, the European Investment Bank also has never really lived up to the rhetoric. So now they're turning into apparently a climate bank. And that was something else I pushed for very hard, you know, for my position on the Economics and Monetary Policy Committee. But there are still a lot of built-in investments around pipelines, around fossil fuels and so on. So the, the, the talk is always better than what's actually delivered. But still, I think what's delivered has, has improved a lot over the years. Do you think the it's time the EU got a little bit tougher with countries like Poland and Hungary, who always seem to extract a very high financial price, as you say, for doing the right thing, while uh, doing things domestically that if they were doing when they applied for membership, they wouldn't be let into the club, um, you know, illiberality and uh, constitutional overreach and suppressing of journalists and LGBT rights and all of that stuff. Do you think it's time that you got a little bit tougher and maybe chucked even someone out? Well, I think here we need to distinguish between the different bits of the EU because the Parliament is, is actually very tough on these rule of law issues and has and the Parliament hasn't agreed this package yet. So as usual, you know, the journalists are all celebrating, oh, a deal was done in the Council, but it actually has to be agreed by the Parliament. And the Parliament has made very clear that it, it doesn't think this package should be agreed unless there are conditions on, on rule of law and standards of democracy in, in Hungary and Poland. So you know, we wait to see how far they're going to push that. But certainly my green colleagues, none of them were tweeting, hurrah, here's a climate package. They were all tweeting, where are the rule of law conditions? So that'll be the battle for next week. That's fascinating. Um, do you think this deal would ever have been agreed with the UK still in the EU? Or is the EU beginning to actively reap the rewards of uh, freedom for, from its perennial heckler, let us say? Well, I think the most interesting thing is which countries are coming in to fill the sort of role of being the, the grumpy partner, you know. Um, that's, yeah, that's quite intriguing. It's quite surprising it's the Netherlands, I think. But the thing is, what we heard here was not really the way the UK behaved in council, I would say. Um, so although disagreements that the UK had with other mem EU member states were always really played up, because especially Tories thought that won them brownie points at home, but uh, actually there was usually quite a lot of agreement and, and the UK generally, you know, would negotiate hard on behalf of British people, as you would expect. But I don't think we were that far off track. I mean, that, that wouldn't be the case now, but that's, you know, why we're having Brexit. I mean, we've got extreme Tory governments now um, as a result of Brexit. But, you know, David Cameron, for example, I think would have quite comfortably negotiated and, and agreed to a package like this. So it's it's more an indication of the extreme... Um, shift to the right uh, that we've had in, in this country after Brexit and because of Brexit, I would mm. say, than being typical of the way negotiations used to work between the UK and the rest of the EU. On a more personal level, um, how has life been post-European Parliament? I mean, has there been a grieving process? It must have been horrible 
for someone who believes in the European project to be part of the last tranche of UK MEPs? It was really heartbreaking and also because I was just determined to give every ounce of energy. In fact, often I didn't really have an ounce of energy, but I was still having to find something, you know, and battling it right to the wire. I knew I was going to do that, but I knew I'd pay the price afterwards. And I have been, yeah, pretty exhausted and, and pretty heartbroken. And I allowed myself February to have a bloody good sulk. And uh, of course, I emerged from my, my duvet to find that the world was going into a, a pandemic. So it's been uh, quite a weird time, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was strange timing. But um, Sorry, did the coronavirus pandemic, do you think, make, make it easier because everything was up in the air for everyone? Or did it make it harder because it was sort of stacking instability on top of instability? I think probably both those things. But it was quite nice that, like, I was going to have a really weird time anyway and be heartbroken and emotional and all those things. And everybody else was like that as well. And, you know, if I couldn't face something, I always had a perfect excuse. So I think I think it did play quite well for me. But, yeah, I just feel now, you know, everything that we said is, is coming true, obviously. And I, I'm thinking about just having I told you so tattooed across my forehead because I get so tired of just having to kind of say, oh, yeah, we, we were saying that actually in 2016 or, you know, this enormous... Um, mess there's going to be down at Dover, you know, oh, surprise, surprise, there will be checks on cheddar cheese and there will be tariffs and, you know, everything we said. So, I mean, the lies are unravelling, but it's it's hard to find any satisfaction or vindication in that because, you know, you just know what an amazing, you know, monstrous problem is coming our way. Um, so, yeah, it's not very, it's not comforting at all to be right. I'm sure you find the same. Yeah. What... What's next for you? What future projects fire you up? Well, to be honest with you, after the 2019 election, the the most important thing, I think, for everybody who who cares about democracy and, and British politics is to get our constitution and our electoral system sorted out. Because... We have got a monstrous government, uh, you know, a government that, that doesn't believe in democracy, where lying is just, you know, something you do routinely. And we've got that government because 43% of people voted for them. And, you know, we've got an electoral system that allows manipulation and, you know, the use of propaganda. And the overwhelming priority for all of us is to change that. And, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to find ways to do that. Obviously, we need Labour to shift their position. I try to do that in a, in a way that's not you know, furious and accusatory, but uh, it, it just needs, to, you know, Labour need to change. They need to accept the need for constitutional change and, and um, electoral reform particularly. Mm. And there's there's various organisations I'm working mm. with on that. So that, I always said that would be my top priority and, and it really is. But I'm also, I'm on the board of the European movement. So, you know, I'm keeping the ties with Europe close as much as I can. And um yeah, in terms of livelihood, I mean, this is where the pandemic really hasn't done me any favours, because obviously, you know, in the academic world, it's quite difficult to get a job at the minute. But I always, I, I really had politics as a vocation, and I found other ways to earn a livelihood. And I think I'm just going to have to accept that, because I can't get a job as an elected politician at the moment, you know, that I have to basically earn my crust and then do my politics on the side. And that, in a way, as a green, I do feel a bit naffed off about that. But on the other hand, I really feel very grateful I could have six years working as a professional politician because in, in Britain that doesn't happen for very many Greens. Mm. I understand you're standing to be the next uh, Green Party 
um, peer in the House of Lords. Is that right? This is quite a strange thing because obviously when we get lords or, yeah, whatever, peers, we get them as a gift and almost always, well, always actually as a gift from a Tory, which really feels pretty unpleasant. But uh, we do then make sure that we select them democratically as a party. So we actually had one which I stood a pretty good chance of getting um, just before Brexit happened. But obviously I was still battling Brexit then. Whether we'll get one from Boris Johnson, I don't know. It's, it's a pretty horrible thing. It's like, you know, kind of going and begging the king to have political representation because the electoral system doesn't work. So mm. you feel pretty bad about it. But yeah, it's, it, we do have um, contests inside the party to, to choose if we get this uh, large yes bestowed by Boris Johnson, then we'll choose who's going to be the person. So yeah, we're having lots of hustings and... Yeah, interesting debates about that right now. Mm, very interesting. So there's not a website we can go and vote for you obsessively on? Or well, you, you can like still that. join the party until the end of the month. So if you're not a member, yes, you can join up and uh, only if you're going to vote for me, obviously. But no, the, there is, yeah, the Green Party's website has, <laughs> has details of that and about the internal elections and uh, little videos we've all done and so on. So yeah, and we're having online hustings. In fact, I've got two tonight. Molly, so. um, oh, very good. Good luck with those. Um, I'm sure I speak for our listeners when I say I'm extremely grateful for your insight. Um, politicians who know what they're talking about are becoming quite a rare breed, and I thank you for being that. Um, and listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday mornings with a longer weekly episode featuring a full panel every Wednesday morning. So don't forget to subscribe, review, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And please support us, if you can, on the funding platform Patreon, where you can search for The Bunker Podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. Stay socially distant but emotionally available and enjoy this podcast safely. This is Alex and Drew from The Bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreu. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>